due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault, domestic violence, and stalking that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 29-year-old Jeannie Budkowski and her best friend Denise danced wildly. Neon lights gleamed as the two of them twirled across the floor of the nightclub. Jeannie beamed. For the first time in months, she felt free. As it neared 10 p.m. though, Jeannie sobered up and harsh reality sunk in. Her stomach dropped as she realized she had to get home, fast. She grabbed Denise and told her they had to go. Pernell was going to be furious. Jeannie raced back to her apartment and dropped Denise off at her car in the visitor's area of the complex. As she neared her driver's side door, Denise saw moonlight glittering off broken glass. Pieces of her windshield littered the dashboard. Terrified, Denise ran back to Jeannie's apartment, frantic with anger and fear. Someone had shot at her car window. Pernell, sitting on Jeannie's couch with a smug grin on his face, told her it must have been the mischievous kids across the street. Jeannie tried not to make eye contact with her friend. She knew the children Pernell accused couldn't have been more than 10 years old. Denise trembled as she left the apartment. Before, she'd been worried that Jeannie liked Pernell better than her. Now, she feared that something much, much worse was going on. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll talk about Jeannie Budkowski's relationship with Pernell Jefferson, a college football star whose steroid dependence ruined his chances of going pro. After Jeannie and Pernell started dating in 1988, his charismatic personality quickly gave way to controlling behavior and violence. Next week, we'll discuss the crime that ended Jeannie and Pernell's relationship and one of their lives for good. We'll see how the police investigation stalled for months until a shocking piece of evidence emerged and forced authorities to take action. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Jeannie Budkowski and Pernell Jefferson came from very different backgrounds. Before she knew Pernell, Jeannie was a strong-willed, if impulsive, young woman. After she graduated high school in 1977, she attended community college near her hometown in Virginia. She worked tirelessly when she wasn't at school, determined to move out on her own. But in 1981, 22-year-old Jeannie met a young Navy enlistee named Tito and fell head over heels. 
Just a few months after they met, Tito and Jeannie got engaged. Although Jeannie's parents were hesitant, they eventually supported her decision. Over the next few months, Jeannie planned her dream wedding. Her father paid over $5,000 for flowers, food, decorations, and more. Then, Tito disappeared as quickly as he came. He'd been talking to another woman behind Jeannie's back, and two days before their wedding, he called the whole thing off to be with the other woman. Jeannie was mortified and heartbroken. The incident destroyed her self-confidence. Before I continue with Jeannie's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to psychologist Dr. Guy Winch, studies with fMRI machines have shown that heartbreak activates similar mechanisms in the brain to those activated when we experience physical pain. Dr. Winch writes that in some cases, heartbreak is even more severe than physical injuries because emotional pain can last for months or even years. But Jeannie seemed to bounce back quickly. After the wedding was called off, Jeannie reconnected with her old high school boyfriend, Tony. She knew that he too had been involved in a failed marriage and was looking for something more stable. The butterflies Jeannie felt as a teenager were still there and she fell in love with Tony all over again. On January 3rd, 1983, 24-year-old Jeannie married her high school sweetheart. The couple moved in with Jeannie's parents in Virginia Beach. Jeannie loved being married and had big plans for her future with Tony, but he didn't feel the same way. He gradually withdrew from his wife for reasons he never explained. Jeannie once again blamed herself, assuming that his attitude had something to do with her physical appearance. To regain his affection, she exercised, watched what she ate, and always had her hair and makeup done when he was around. Unfortunately, her efforts went unnoticed. In the fall of 1985, barely three years into a union that was supposed to last forever, Tony moved to Pennsylvania and filed for divorce. The separation was another tough blow for Jeannie. She couldn't understand why the men she loved treated her like she was disposable. With her confidence crushed again, she turned to her best friend, Denise, for solace. Denise was going through her own divorce at the time, so the women leaned on each other. In early 1986, hoping to get some of her self-esteem back, 27-year-old Jeannie started going to therapy. It would be over two years before she was ready to date again. In 1988, she met Pernell Jefferson and was instantly struck by his confidence. Pernell was a charmer, but beneath his charismatic facade, he hid a painful past. His father had abandoned him as a young boy, leaving his mother to support him and his younger brother on her own. The neglect left Purnell with an all-consuming desire to impress those around him. In high school, he found the best way to do that was on the football field. In his hometown of Benson, North Carolina, he soon garnered a reputation for being handsome, polite, and a talented athlete. Not surprisingly, 16-year-old Purnell had no trouble getting girls. During his junior year in 1980, he started dating his first girlfriend, a 14-year-old classmate who, in order to protect her identity, we will call by the pseudonym Allison. At first, Allison loved being with Purnell. 
but soon she learned that he had a dark side. As long as he was in front of crowds, Purnell was respectful and kind. When he and Allison were alone, however, he became overbearing and controlling. He kept track of everyone she spoke to and wanted to know where she was at all times. He wanted everyone at school to know that Allison belonged to him and nobody else. But Allison didn't want to belong to anybody. She wanted to be her own person and Purnell wouldn't let her. Over the next couple of years, while he continued to cement his reputation as a football player, she repeatedly broached the subject of his controlling behavior. She tried to speak to him gently, but he never got the point. Near the end of his senior year, 16-year-old Allison tried to break off their relationship for good. Just looking at Purnell made Allison's heart ache. She loved him, there was no question about that, but she didn't like him, not the way she used to. Allison wanted to let Purnell down easy, but he acted like he didn't understand what she meant. She had to be completely clear. So she told Purnell that they had to break up. She didn't want to be his girlfriend anymore. All of a sudden, white hot pain exploded across her face. Blood dripped from her nose. For a moment, she couldn't even process what had happened. Then she looked up and saw Purnell, who was staring at his fist like he couldn't believe it had just crashed into her cheek. Purnell kept saying how sorry he was, but the damage was done. Allison was too afraid to speak. The message was clear. He wasn't going to allow her to leave. Allison's father found out about the assault when she came home bruised. Furious, he went to Purnell's mother's house and told her what her son had done. She made Purnell apologize, but other than that, he faced practically no consequences for his actions. Allison had a hard time believing Purnell's regret would outweigh his temper in the future. She was too afraid to try to break up with him again, so they stayed together as he approached graduation. Before the school year ended, he received a football scholarship to attend Guilford College, a small university about 45 minutes away from Benson. The scholarship was proof that Purnell was special. It convinced Allison to forgive him and put the past behind her. The night he agreed to attend Guilford, he and Allison had sex. Nine months later, while Purnell was away at college, 17-year-old Allison gave birth to a baby boy named Purnell Jr. Purnell Sr. wasn't the most involved father. He couldn't be. College football was far more intense than he could have imagined. He'd been a star in high school, but now he was just another player. He worked out constantly, trying to build more muscle. At the beginning of his sophomore year in the fall of 1982, Purnell began taking anabolic steroids. Almost like magic, he was stronger than ever before. Purnell thought the steroids were incredible. Allison, however, disagreed. The steroids exacerbated Purnell's mood swings and anger problems. Allison already knew he could be mean. The steroids made him downright cruel. She broke up with him again, hoping the distance from Benson to Greensboro would insulate her from his rage. This time, the breakup went smoothly, but only because Purnell already decided he wanted to date someone else. 
a fellow student who, in order to keep her identity a secret, we will call by the pseudonym Emma. Just like Allison, Emma only saw Purnell's good side until they started dating. Only then did his domineering attitude emerge once again. Throughout the rest of his college years, Purnell steadily increased his steroid dosage and led the Guilford football team to victory, all while violently abusing Emma. In a later statement, Emma said, I don't even remember the first time he hit me because he wound up hitting me so much. Like Allison, Emma didn't know how to escape Purnell. Anytime she tried to break up with him, he abused her. One fight got so bad that Emma was hospitalized. Finally, she pressed assault charges against Purnell. He was found guilty, but he forced her to pay his $200 fine. At barely 20 years old, Purnell had badly abused at least two women, was dependent on anabolic steroids, and had an assault charge. That was, however, his secret life. Publicly, he was Guilford College's best football player. Near the end of his sophomore year in 1984, NFL scouts came to watch him play. He accepted an offer to attend training camp with the Cleveland Browns. He was on his way to stardom. Four years later, when he met Jeannie Budkowski, who was ready to date again after two heartbreaking relationships, Purnell made himself out to be a responsible, driven athlete. He was charming, talented, and seemed to have her best interest in mind. Jeannie had no idea what Purnell was capable of. Coming up, Purnell's life spirals downward. Listeners, here's a show you do not want to miss. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales and some don't. In Our Love Story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Ready to hear more? Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, back to the story. Jeannie Putkowski and Purnell Jefferson came from different worlds. By 1986, 27-year-old Jeannie was divorced, living with her parents and attending therapy to cope with her dwindling self-confidence. Purnell, on the other hand, had established himself as a college football star and in 1984, attended training camp with the Cleveland Browns. It looked like he was on his way to fame, 
but beneath his successful exterior were two terrible secrets. He was heavily dependent on steroids and had a history of physically and mentally abusing women. As Purnell prepared for training camp, a coach from the Browns asked him whether or not he took performance-enhancing drugs. Purnell admitted that he did, and the coach suggested he get off the hormones. At the time, the NFL was just beginning widespread drug testing, and a positive result could ruin his career before it began. Purnell took the coach's advice. Just before the training camp began, he stopped injecting steroids. The effect was almost instantaneous. He felt tired, weak, and slow. With the drugs, he could keep up with seasoned players. Without them, he looked like a rookie and a bad one at that. Purnell knew his performance was less than impressive, and if his past behavior illustrated anything, it was that he couldn't handle rejection. Instead of risking getting cut by the coaches, he packed his things and left the camp in the middle of the night. As soon as he got back home, he bought and injected more steroids. The Browns coaches called and asked him to come back, but for whatever reason, Purnell refused. He had effectively sabotaged his own athletic career. His girlfriend, Emma, once again saw the cruel man lurking beneath his friendly facade. Near the end of 1985, she tried to end her relationship with 21-year-old Purnell. He didn't take it well. When Emma told Purnell things were over between them, he became furious. He called her over and over and left voicemails threatening her. He made it clear that in his mind, she belonged to him. In early 1986, Emma started dating another man. Even though they'd been broken up for over four months, Purnell showed up at her college campus to intimidate her, left notes on her door, and constantly reminded her that wherever she went, he would find her. Purnell was a full-blown stalker. There is no single profile of or simple explanation for people who stalk. However, in her research on stalkers, psychologist Dr. Christine Keeneland found that more than half of the 24 male stalkers she interviewed had evidence of what psychologists call an attachment disorder stemming from the childhood loss or absence of a caring and consistent parent. The fact that Purnell's father abandoned him at a young age may have made him vulnerable to developing an attachment disorder. Such a disorder could have made it difficult for him to empathize with others as an adult, leading to his anger problems and control issues. His stalking and violent behavior may have been a misguided attempt to stop Emma from abandoning him the way his father had. The stalking, of course, only made her want to get further away from Purnell. She was terrified of him and knew he was capable of violence. Still, she didn't realize just how evil he could be. During the spring semester of 1986, Purnell broke into her dorm room, kidnapped her, and drove her to a local hotel. Over the following 24 hours, he repeatedly raped her and beat her so badly that he shattered one of her eardrums. The extent to which Purnell's steroid use impacted his violent behavior is unclear. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, 
people who misuse anabolic steroids report more anger than non-users, as well as more fights, verbal aggression, and violence towards their significant others. However, research has yet to conclude whether this anger is caused by steroid use or simply correlated with it. It's possible that certain personality traits like aggression are overrepresented among steroid users to begin with and that steroid misuse worsens rather than creates anger and violence. Purnell exhibited controlling and abusive behavior before he ever injected these drugs. But his violence escalated considerably once he'd used them for an extended period of time. Emma finally escaped Purnell when one of her friends called her found out what had happened and contacted the police. Emma was initially too afraid to press charges, and when she eventually did, authorities unjustly took her less seriously because of her hesitation. The local district attorney's office ultimately chose not to prosecute Purnell on abduction charges, instead characterizing the horrific assault as a domestic dispute. Over the next year, Purnell continued calling Emma reminding her that he could hurt her if he wanted to. He only left her alone after he met a new woman who worked out at his gym. That relationship, however, only lasted a few months before the woman went to police about his physical abuse. Purnell skipped town before she could press charges. In 1987, the 23-year-old moved to Virginia Beach, the same town where Jeannie lived. Jeannie and Purnell lived near each other for almost a year before they met in 1988. By that time, she had worked through many of her self-esteem issues with the help of a therapist, and the outgoing side of her personality was finally coming back. She went out every week with her closest friend, Denise, and joined a bowling league and a softball team. She even moved into her own apartment and started dating again. Through a mutual friend, she met a man named Mike, a tall, handsome police officer, who Jeannie was instantly attracted to. Mike's main hobby was physical fitness. In fact, he and Jeannie's dates would consist of afternoons spent together at the gym. Jeannie gradually started to enjoy working out more and eventually told Mike she was interested in building more muscle. That was when Mike introduced her to a man who worked out at the gym and knew all about weightlifting. His name was Purnell Jefferson. It didn't take long for 24-year-old Purnell and 28-year-old Jeannie to grow close. He made himself out to be an impressive athlete who still had a future in the NFL, not a man who was dependent on steroids and likely squandered his chances of going pro. Soon after introducing Jeannie to Purnell, Mike stopped showing up at the gym. It was clear that she liked Purnell better than him. Jeannie was smitten. Denise, on the other hand, saw red flags in Purnell's behavior right away. She thought he was chauvinistic and dishonest. He claimed he'd been drafted by the NFL, but had no money to show for it. Even though Denise warned her to be cautious, Jeannie dismissed her concerns. She was soon spending all of her free hours with Purnell, who made it his mission to isolate her from the outside world. Within weeks of meeting him, Jeannie stopped going out with Denise on the weekends. She became concerned about her body, afraid that if she wasn't showing enough muscle definition, Purnell would think she was slacking in her workouts. 
One afternoon, Jeannie and Denise made plans to go out, but when Denise arrived to pick up her friend, Purnell wouldn't let her open the door. Purnell was transforming Jeannie fast, and she didn't like all the changes. But his domineering behavior made her too afraid to say that she no longer wanted a romantic relationship. Jeannie's mother worried her daughter was backsliding on the progress she'd made in therapy. The confidence and self-sufficiency she gained was waning. When she confronted her daughter about the relationship, Jeannie denied that she and Purnell were together at all. She said they were just friends, likely because that's all she wanted to be. But Purnell didn't care what she wanted. He practically lived in her apartment. It's unclear what exactly happened when Jeannie and Purnell were alone at her home, but his intimidation made it nearly impossible for her to institute any kind of boundaries. Then, out of nowhere, 24-year-old Purnell suddenly moved away. He packed up his things one day in 1988 and drove to Richmond. All he told Jeannie was that he got a new job as a delivery man in the city. Denise was thrilled that Purnell was gone and Jeannie was relieved. After he left, she could breathe freely for the first time in months. Still, she remained secretive about her relationship with Purnell, likely because she didn't want to worry her friends and family. Denise didn't ask too many questions. She was just happy to have her best friend back. Unfortunately, her relief didn't last long. Less than a month after he moved away, Purnell randomly showed up at Jeannie's apartment again. She didn't know how to handle the intrusion. After all, if she knew anything about Purnell, it was that he didn't take no for an answer. That day, Jeannie had plans to go out dancing with Denise, something they hadn't done since before she and Purnell met. Purnell was upset that Jeannie wanted to go out when he'd just gotten into town, even though she never invited him in the first place. Jeannie promised not to stay out too late, but when she and Denise returned to the apartment complex after 10 p.m., the windshield of Denise's Jeep was full of bullet holes. Jeannie confronted Purnell about the damage. He claimed he'd seen the kids across the street making trouble that evening, but it was a pitiful excuse. Jeannie knew Purnell was to blame. His message was loud and clear. When he was around, she had to give him all of her attention. The next day, Purnell returned to Richmond, but started calling Jeannie multiple times a day and leaving creepy voicemails. He continued showing up uninvited almost every weekend, forcing Jeannie into a romantic relationship that she didn't want anything to do with. Jeannie tried her best to move on from Purnell, a few days after Thanksgiving, 1988, Tony, her first husband, called her to catch up. He told her he'd been married again, but was in the process of getting another divorce. He was coming back into town on Christmas and hoped, now that he was single again, that they could spend some time together. Jeannie couldn't help but let a bud of hope bloom. She still loved Tony. She would always love Tony. And it sounded like he wanted her back. Purnell, however, posed a major problem. She couldn't predict when he would show up, and when he did, he wouldn't let her see anyone else. Even when he was out of town, he called to see where she was and who she was with. 
he threatened to hurt her if she didn't answer the phone. The only reason Jeannie felt safe seeing Tony at all was because Purnell told her that he would be out of town during the holidays. He was supposedly going to North Carolina to visit his son. A week before Christmas, however, he showed up unannounced at Jeannie's apartment, demanding to be let inside. Jeannie knew she couldn't hide. Purnell had already seen her car parked outside. She let him in and watched him carefully, assessing his mood. That day, he seemed calm and he said he had a gift to drop off before he drove to Benson. For Jeannie, it was an opportunity. Purnell seemed mellow and was on his way out of town. The moment was perfect. Jeannie sat across from Purnell and told him that she cared about him, but their relationship wasn't going to work. She framed it as a breakup only because Purnell still seemed to believe they were together. She told him he deserved better than what she could give him. Jeannie watched Purnell, ready for him to start screaming or throwing things around her apartment. But he was strangely impassive. He left the small gift he brought Jeannie on the coffee table and left calmly. All the tension drained from Jeannie's body. She'd been so afraid to say those words, but the breakup went surprisingly well. Inside the box, she uncovered a gold charm bracelet. She fastened it around her wrist and breathed a sigh of relief. With Purnell officially out of the picture, Jeannie was optimistic. Tony arrived in town a few days before Christmas. They started talking and it was like they'd never been apart. They clicked just like they had in high school. Within days, the couple, both 29 years old, discussed getting remarried. Tony mentioned the possibility of going to Mexico for their second honeymoon. Jeannie was quick to put Tony's previous behavior behind her. She pretended like he'd never left her, barely considering the possibility that he might do it again. A few days after Christmas, they shared a night together at her apartment, but just before they fell asleep, they were both jolted upright by the sound of someone pounding on the balcony door. Jeannie ran to the window and saw Purnell. He'd climbed the terrace and pulled himself up onto her balcony. He stood breathing heavily, his eyes wild, waiting to be let inside. Up next, Purnell's violence escalates. Now, back to the story. 29-year-old Jeannie Budkowski was stuck in a terrible situation. In late 1988, she tried to break things off with boyfriend-turned-stalker Purnell Jefferson. A few days later, she reconnected with her ex-husband, Tony. But while Tony was spending the night at her apartment, someone started pounding on her balcony door. Jeannie looked out the window and saw Purnell, wide-eyed and breathing heavily. He refused to let Jeannie go. Purnell tried to break in, but Tony, who had no idea who the man on the balcony was, called 911. The moment 29-year-old Purnell saw the flashing lights of a police cruiser, he climbed back down the terrace and fled. Jeannie was horrified. Tony tried to calm her down by assuring her that the intruder wouldn't be back. But Tony didn't know the whole story, and Jeannie didn't want to tell him. She worried that if he knew how dangerous Purnell really was, 
he would leave her again. She hid the truth instead of asking for help. After the new year, Tony went back to Pennsylvania. Throughout January 1989, Jeannie got frequent calls from Purnell. She didn't answer the phone, but did listen to his messages. He threatened her and claimed he'd once put a woman in the hospital for trying to leave him. She called him back, begging him to leave her alone, but he wouldn't back down. Meanwhile, Jeannie continued trying to rebuild her relationship with Tony, never breathing a word about Purnell's harassment to him. Soon, they started talking about getting remarried and buying a house in Pennsylvania. Tony filled her with hope. Moving to Pennsylvania with him was her escape plan from Purnell. But as time went on, her spirit dwindled. According to her friend Denise, near the end of January 1989, Jeannie fell into a deep depression. She barely ate and often went to bed before 6 p.m. Purnell made her feel like she had no agency over her own life. Jeannie spent most of her time at home alone. She didn't want to tell her family how afraid she was of Purnell because she didn't want to worry them. But she also didn't want to go out. She felt safer in her apartment, where she could at least lock her doors. Social isolation, like the kind Purnell inflicted on Jeannie, is often a major component of abuse. According to Dr. Vera Maradian, a public health expert at the National Violence Against Women Prevention Research Center, abusers who socially isolate their victims are focused on impairing the victim support network. By doing so, abusers make it less likely that their victims will get help from friends, family, or law enforcement. Social isolation can also drastically reduce feelings of independence and self-esteem, which Jeannie already struggled with. Because of Purnell's endless torment, she was anxious, depressed, and felt like nobody else could help her. The only thing that cut through Jeannie's depression was the possibility that she might soon leave Virginia Beach. During the third week of February 1989, she visited Tony in Pennsylvania. They hadn't yet set a date for their wedding, but they planned their honeymoon and looked at houses. She hoped Purnell would leave her alone for good if she moved away. As soon as she got back to Virginia in March, though, a neighbor stopped her and asked her if she'd given anyone permission to be in her apartment while she was out of town. They said that a man who, according to the description, looked like Purnell, stayed several nights in Jeannie's apartment while she was gone. Jeannie's stomach dropped. She looked around for Purnell's car, but it wasn't anywhere in the parking lot, so she assumed he wasn't there anymore. She walked up the stairs and opened her door slowly. As soon as she got inside, Jeannie saw that her home had been ransacked, her dishes were broken, her couch had been flipped over, and her clothing was strewn all over the apartment. She was too sad to be angry. Purnell had taken all the fury out of her. She only felt vulnerable, hurt, and afraid. Her life and her home had been turned upside down. She didn't understand what she'd done to become his victim. She felt like there was nowhere safe for her to run. Then, before Jeannie could fully process what happened, Purnell jumped out from behind the door and slammed her against the wall. He didn't look anything like the charming man she'd met at the gym less than a year before. He looked like 
a monster. Over the next few hours, Purnell repeatedly beat and raped Jeannie in her apartment. When he finally left, she could hardly move. She thought about going to her parents' house, but her mother never liked Purnell to begin with, and Jeannie feared her parents would blame her for what happened. Instead, she drove to Denise's where she collapsed on the couch and cried her eyes out. The next day, Denise brought Jeannie back to her apartment to grab her things. Jeannie canceled her phone service and moved in with Denise, where she hoped Purnell wouldn't be able to contact her or track her down. But Purnell somehow knew exactly where Jeannie was. For days, he watched Denise's house to get an idea of the women's schedules. One evening, when Jeannie was home alone, Purnell broke in and abducted her. Denise came home from work, noticed Jeannie's absence, and panicked. Luckily, the women had devised a system. They called each other numerous times each day, checking in and leaving messages with their locations. The first thing Denise did when she realized Jeannie was gone was to check her answering machine. On it, she heard Jeannie's voice, trembling and desperate, begging Purnell to stop, followed by sounds of Purnell dragging her out of the house. Denise immediately called the police to report the kidnapping and played the recording for them. It was the first time evidence of Purnell's harassment had been turned over to authorities. Just after the officers left, Denise received a call from Jeannie. At Purnell's direction, Jeannie tried to pretend like everything was okay on the other end of the line, but Denise knew better. She had a feeling that Purnell was listening in, so she told him that she had evidence of the abduction on tape, which she had already handed over to the police. Jeannie's tone changed. She said she was on her way home. Jeannie arrived back at the house, bruised and pale about half an hour later. She urged Denise not to call the police, but the authorities were already involved. Denise had even called Jeannie's parents. Her dad was ready to drive her to the police station. Jeannie refused to go along. She told her father that Purnell would kill her if she talked to anyone about what had happened. He had terrified and intimidated her to the point that she was afraid to get help. Jeannie's father drove her to the station anyway, but she refused to press charges. Frustrated, he realized the best he could do was bring his daughter to his house where he could protect her. But Jeannie lived in constant terror. Even with her father there to watch over her, she slept with a knife beside her bed. But nothing could stop Purnell. In April 1989, about two weeks after the abduction, he called Tony and told him that Jeannie was his woman. Tony immediately called off his second wedding with Jeannie, telling her he didn't want to be involved in any drama. Jeannie was destroyed. Her relationship with Tony was the only thing that gave her any hope for the future. Without him, she felt like she had no prospects and no way to protect herself. Now, her only focus was trying to stay alive. In a last-ditch effort to avoid Purnell, she jumped back and forth from spending the night at Denise's to sleeping at her parents' house. Her only hope was that by never following a pattern, she could stop Purnell from tracking her down. But there was no getting away from him. 
On May 5th, 1989, Jeannie sat alone at Denise's house, waiting for her friend to come home from a ballroom dancing class. All of a sudden, someone started pounding on the front door. She knew right away who it was. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Jeannie Budkowski's story. We'll talk about how Jeannie and Purnell's relationship finally ended and how a hunter found a crucial piece of evidence that helped put the culprit behind bars. For more information on Purnell Jefferson, amongst the many sources we used for the episode, we found Deadly Goals, the true story of an all-American football hero who stalked and murdered by Wilt Browning extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from ParCast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.